Welcome back. Yes. Right. Welcome back. Welcome back. How are this, we? Uh, well, we're not too bad. It's 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 good to be back on the air, back on the camera. Uh, we've we've covered all the airwaves, uh, video and audio, uh, for the second time. I think our first round has been successful, and uh, hopefully, we get a good response from all you, our wonderful, beloved listeners and now viewers out there. I don't know how do we refer to. I guess you just say audience in general. Audience, uh, yes, they're the audience. Listen, no, you are the audience, not you, Mike, the the people listening. The people listening, (laughs) the important folks, not us, the important people. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I hope everybody's had a good week and a good weekend and looking forward to to the next as the year. My God, we're already halfway through March. Isn't this the week of the Ides (sighs) of March? Aren't we here? Yeah, this is this is it. This is it. And you know, it, it's it's an interesting time when old Julius Caesar uh, was assassinated, and and here we are, two thousand years later, still remembering it. Uh, Not only remembering it, but perhaps perhaps reliving it in our own version. Uh, I hear that uh, the Iowa caucuses are already rounding up out there. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! That's just what we need is is the, the political. Well, you know, here in Virginia, you never get away from it because the odd years are when we have state and local elections. your local yeah so yeah, yeah so uh you can't get away from it. i was driving down the road the other day and I, I saw all the political signs in the front yards and i i turned to my wife and said what is this and she said oh we have primaries in may I was like, yeah what the time is upon us people <laughs> the time is upon us and, and it never goes away and i don't know that's 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 not our episode for today uh, but no. uh, it's probably an exploration. I mean, is this nation about governing or just running to govern and not actually uh, getting much done when we get there? Whole that sounds like a whole other episode. We probably <laughs> we probably ought to stop before this becomes this episode. And, and, and indeed. Uh, you know, I was uh, I, I was reading the news this morning and I, I see a former president has a book coming out, which I thought, you know, that's not uncommon. Lots of former presidents have books coming out. It's It's what they do. And apparently his previous book made $20 million, which was uh, President Trump's first book after he left office. The cost on this book, which I found appalling, $99 to get this book, $99. It's all the people who sent him letters starting back in the 80s that he's collected their letters over the years. Uh, All famous people. He said not necessarily good, but but all famous. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Including a letter from like 2000 when Oprah said we should run together, we'd be a heck of a team. So <laughs> anyway, I, I I found it interesting that nine again all presidents write books. I get it, but but ninety nine dollars, my goodness, that 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 must be like come with a bar in, of gold in it or something. Well, uh, this particular author um, is uh, is known for. Uh, ringing every last drop out of uh, the the can he can, so there it is. But, well, uh, I guess you become a you don't. Become but he's a not unique there either. Or not. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, but it well, is what is what our it is. what is our topic for today? I hear there's there's a, well, a point of passion that uh, you've been wanting to get into. I, I don't know if it's a passion. It's 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 a it's a, a go to that just bugs the heck out of me, and and I hear. You know, why should I have to do this? Well, because of the social contract. Well, you know, I, I, I'm like, what the heck's a social contract? And, and by the way, this is not a new idea. This this goes all the way back, back, back to Socrates. To the Greeks. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yep. It goes back to Socrates. And um, it, it's not uncommon to, to hear it called out. 
and I'm like, I don't remember signing this contract. I don't feel obligated. And, and if I did sign this contract, that means the other side has to do what they're supposed to do. And they sure aren't doing that. So I thought maybe we could just discuss this idea of a social contract. And what does it mean to just the average, you're going to have to play the role of just the average guy. What does it mean when you hear the word social contract? And um, what does it imply for us if you do indeed adhere to such a thing? Or, or if we don't adhere to it, what does that mean to society at large? So kind of where I am, I know it sounds really boring, but I'm pretty sure we can make it fun. So, Okay, I'm going to pause right there on that. So and ask you, my, I think your computer did it and then mine just did it. A text came through and I heard the bing. Did you hear it as well? I heard it, but it, it, I have my email and my text shut down. So because okay. there's a guy on the other end of this line who yells at me when I get messages. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm asking you, how do I turn this, make it, do I put it in Clo- airplane? Close your, yeah, you're not going to be able to silence it completely, but go ahead and close out your messenger. And you know what? That one may have been me. Uh, I heard, I heard so, one coming from your end and then one came through one came just now on end, mine. So, yeah. So I'm going to yeah, quit messenger. We'll just shut all that down. And I'll shut off email too, just to be safe. Um, all right. And is there anything else here that could be? And it was from my phone. So even the best laid plans of my cement, if you leave your phone by your <laughs> microphone, guess what it picks up? Is that what it was? Okay. Yeah, it was from my phone. All right. And <laughs> so. I'll, put, I'll put my phone in airplane mode and then hopefully. Where's that? Do not disturb. Uh, that's settings. Yeah. Is on. Okay. So hopefully. All right. So, so we'll uh, cut all that bad stuff out and we'll kick it back off. Well, that's why I was waiting for you to get to a proper period and then <laughs> it won't be an issue. So picking picking back up. All right, here we go. I think it's interesting, this idea of the social contract, because, you know, it's, as you say, it goes all the way back to the early Greeks, which I think, um, if I remember my history lessons properly, that was the first stirrings of what we think of as modern democratic governance, right? Uh, the people right, right. actually being engaged. They, they had played with pure democracy where, where, you know, everybody, every citizen votes on every issue and then went to a form of republic later on, which, yes. which comes in with the Plato, Platonic era. And so, you know, representative uh, government. And uh, by the way, when we say democracy and Republican, we're not talking about American political parties. We're talking no, about no, governmental no, no. These are here. S- systemic <laughs> yeah. uh, models that, uh, that right. are based on ancient human uh, civilization, at least for the most part, as far back as our modern records uh, of history books right. and writing uh, go to. And it's, it's also worth saying that it was about that time. I think it is related to some degree. Before the period of Socrates, Plato, this period, we didn't have paper. You know, the, the right. writing consisted of tablature and, and things of that stuff that you would hear about. Um, but was it Plato? I can't remember, but just as a fun aside, he did not like the, and correct me if if I got the wrong philosopher, but I remember reading, he did not like the idea when they invented paper because he questioned would this would have a detrimental effect on our ability to remember things because so much of what existed was held in memory and then passed through oral tradition and conversation. This was where the development of... um, uh, uh, oh, I'm so, sorry. Then forgetting the uh, uh, oh, 
I'll edit this moment well, out well, too. No, the, uh, while, the... While, while you go ahead. <laughs> um, well, while you're thinking, uh, you know, Mediterranean culture has the, the pass down of, of the all knowledge through a uh, rote memorization. And so when Westerners hear that scripture was memorized by the rabbis or, or by the priests, the Levites, Levite mm-hmm. priests, uh, we think that there's something lost, but uh, the Mediterranean tradition is such that you were quizzed and quizzed and quizzed until you got it spot on every time, no error. And, and to the point of the Greek philosophers, which of course are a Mediterranean culture, uh, the idea that we no longer had to memorize, they found that very troubling because uh, of the thought that your brain was going to begin to atrophy because they, they figured it was like a muscle and the more you used it, the better it was. So uh, did you remember what you were trying to remember? <laughs> so. yes. it's, it's, it's worth saying we usually record in the afternoon. We've, we've switched at least uh, on, on one day of our recording a week to, to the morning and uh, it, the brain cells haven't quite fired yet. Um, but no, uh, r- rhetorical uh, forms, right. the art of rhetoric, and, you know, we think that word has become a dirty word, especially in the context of political conversation as, a, you know, this this rambling on of, of nonsensical uh, political manipulation and jargon. But the fact of the matter is it was these early philosophers who developed the art of rhetoric and rhetorical devices, which were essentially the the skill and the art of persuasion, of argument to with the idea of. There, is, there are actually methodologies you can employ in a debate, in a conversation, to uh, help convince and, and influence and persuade your audience to your side of the argument. And this also came out of this oral tradition, the fact that we spoke and engaged each other, sometimes rapidly uh, and passionately, but uh, in addition to the art of speaking, there was a a skill of listening. People were actually engaged very actively in listening to argument, taking into consideration different ideas, debating them in a much healthier way, uh, healthy in the sense of an informed and structural right. way. And in many ways, that's how, you know, we, the modern version of that is what we have as the debate when we sit and listen to two people go on and try and. Uh, you know, decide if we feel that one is right or more than the other and so forth, uh, and then go on and vote accordingly, perhaps. But uh, that, that form goes, like we say, all the way back to the, the Greeks and, and those ancient, what we now consider ancient, early governmental organizations that you would actually sit in. It was part of the educational system, rhetoric. Uh, what we think of probably right. as the middle school period was r- rhetoric was a major part of your academic growth because it, they felt it was incredibly important to understanding the world and how to communicate ideas verbally through oral engagement. Um, and through that and out of those debates and arguments came this idea of the social contract, this idea that people and members of a society have a sometimes spoken some in written sometimes unspoken agreement to engage each other in a civil and healthy um, productive and nonviolent way um, and sometimes it breaks down <laughs> well and, and, and therein well and therein lies the rub 
if there was indeed such a thing, I'll, I'll, we can talk about the second half of the show. Uh, but but in the first half, uh, Socrates uh, is who Plato's writing about. And of course, we know the story Socrates mm-hmm. drank the conium, which ended his life because he had been uh, convicted by the courts of uh, breaking the law of Athens, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And he, because he had taught the youth, he had corrupted the youth. A- mm-hmm. And we have to realize these these are guys who sat out in the town square and they were surrounded by their students, of which Plato was one. And um, mm-hmm. they would they would teach rhetoric, they would teach philosophy, they would teach theology, they would teach whatever it is they're teaching every day. And, and so the uh, Greek society or, or Athenian society had had recognized that he was an influence, uh, maybe not so positive, and convicted him of, of corrupting the youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Plato made the argument Socrates, who could have left. You know, these were small little city states. He could have could have taken off for another one pretty easily. Uh, that Socrates stayed because the implied social contract that he had to bear the consequences of his actions in society. Um, and, and you know, I was I was reading some informational articles and then I read some arguments against it. And uh, we know of three occasions where Socrates refused to recognize the social contract. Uh, one where um, he was asked by authorities to help arrest someone else so he could be executed, and he said he wouldn't do it. Um, and there, there were a couple other involving legal aspects that, that are recorded in Plato's writings. So I think it was something he was still forming in his mind before he, he died, uh, which I, I found kind of interesting that he hadn't even fully formed the idea. Well, if you think about it, these were... It's kind of like the idea of what we call today is uh, uh, old English. We we refer right. we use that term as old English. That you know the the ancient uh, uh, ideas of the early days of English that we see in the writing of Shakespeare and whatnot. Um, the the interesting thing is that's not old English. It's young English. If you really oh, sure. want to break it down, it was you know very early modern English still in its development, which is why words didn't have standardized spelling, meanings were still very fluid and whatnot. And in the same way, these old philosophies that we think of are actually incredibly young philosophies at the time. They weren't fully formed. These were the guys that were hatching these ideas and still working them out and paying dearly perhaps for... uh, uh, coming up with ideas that were against the grain of the the, the society at the time, uh, as you mentioned with Socrates. And it's interesting because obviously he had a conviction uh, to his his beliefs to the degree that he stood and, and, and bore the responsibility as he saw it uh, to, to follow through with, um, something that I don't know how many of us would do that today. <laughs> Well, um, you know, it, it is it is an interesting aspect of it, and, and I found I didn't spend too much time on it, but I did find it quite intriguing that um, he he felt the duty to to to, to drink the the potion, uh, and I, I I did I did kind of find that, and I spent just a few minutes reading up on that. I, I have been told that story. I'm, I'm sure most of us have been since I was a little guy about Socrates and mm-hmm. and him, his willingness to drink that. Uh, and be his own executioner, essentially. Um, but, you know, it, it in, in my research, it then goes down. And, and by the way, quick aside, um, I think the oldest uh, document we have in true old English is Beowulf, if I remember correctly. Isn't mm. that right? Yeah, which to the modern so, reader is almost we unreadable. Read it. Yeah. Yeah. It's translation. I, I tried. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, most <laughs> so, of what we have, uh, you know, we think of our translations in some form um, to some intelligible version of modern English. Um, yeah, I couldn't read it. I, I tried. It's it, They tell me it comes English comes from German, and I'm sure it does in, in the history of languages, but I wonder if German would be intelligible to a modern German speaker from that uh, well, first Well, modern uh, German millennia. is barely, you know, this is a tangent, but just for fun, modern German is barely intelligent to half the Germans because the people in the North <laughs> speak very differently than the people in the South and so forth. You know, it's, it's a different thing, Bavaria as opposed to, what do they call it, High German? I forget what the term is. They do, standard. though. Though my understanding is those dialects are dying, just like our our regional accents are dying. Uh, mm. And so, um, like That's my mother's from from the falls, they speak a speak a dialect called Falsish. Mm. And you know the you, my dad who's Bavarian can't understand my uncle who's Falsish. And uh, I think we've even mentioned this in previous episodes. And to your point, you know the High German, the Berliner German is very different than those regional dialects and, mm. and those dialects are true dialects they're not accents they're they're whole different no they're almost of languages amongst, <laughs> of their own yeah. absolutely and anybody who's ever been to wales uh i mean they speak english but it's really welsh <laughs> you know, it's not <laughs> and the further you go in scotland the less yeah. uh, uh american and, ears can and, understand so yeah. no it's, it's celtic gaelic all uh, these others but anyhow that's that's I, another I, diversion <laughs> yeah that's another topic so so you know in in my own research then jean jacques rousseau comes up in in the conversation uh uh john locke comes up in, in the conversation emmanuel kant comes into the mm. conversation. So all these more Enlightenment era philosophers who, who of course, discover Plato's writings because of the influences of Thomas Aquinas, who, who had accepted uh, Greek philosophy into the, the Catholic canon of, of thought. And so mm. now these, these uh, philosophers and, and other researchers could study these Greek documents in native languages because they had at least been translated into Latin, if not the local vernacular. Mm. So, so now these are very accessible and these enlightenment philosophers get a hold of this and, and they continue to develop the idea. And so uh, the thing that Locke said essentially was that if we own anything, we own ourselves, we, we own our body. Mm. And, and consequently uh, we can be, we can agree to a contract, a nonverbal and nonwritten contract, uh, through self-ownership by remaining in society. And, and that's, I, I just I, want to stop you ahead, there. That is an, that's an interesting uh, moment in, in that analysis, especially in the context of our current uh, conversation through things of abortion and whatnot in this country today. And it's not unique to this country, but the debate that we have is this idea of, of our bodies, ourselves, our body, we should have full control over this and not to make this about that argument, but it's interesting how those early stirrings of what it is to be uh, self-governing, you know, both as an individual and then as a participant in society, what does that look like and how are those early ideas of what, what that reality or philosophy, I guess, should be, how we see that still being a a, a, a lively uh, debate in in our discourse, you know, how many hundreds thousands of years later, depending on uh, on on which thing we're talking about here. 
just I as you said that that just jumped in as an, an interesting well well and I think the discussion is 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 when does my right to self ownership override someone else's right to their self ownership yes and that is the abortion debate in a nutshell yeah uh, and, and we won't talk about that today though we're not averse to talking about it in the future oh, and we'll I get think there. we've touched it on it in the <laughs> yeah. past so it's uh, yeah. if if you haven't figured it out folks there are no sacred cows on civil discourse no, no, no. we 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 skewer them all <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so, it's, so I, I found all that yeah. interesting, and I'll pause because obviously you did too. No, so. I, I, I just want to say it's. I find it fascinating that in many ways we have seen a lot of growth uh, and, and and progress in our modern iteration of society, much of which in just the last century we've seen major shifts in the legal representation of of that growth, uh, laws that have. Uh, you know, especially in the 60s, civil rights, women's rights, whatnot, shifted in a major way from thousands of years of, of active governance before that. And, you know, doesn't mean the debate isn't there, which, you know, is the converse of the whole thing. It's interesting that despite what has been a lot of, of growth in many ways, much of the underpinnings of that, of these arguments, debates, philosophies, Still are just as up in the air uh, amongst oh, us as, as a people, um, and I suppose that maybe is is part of human nature. These are things that are universal and indefinite uh, in our in our development and understanding of ourselves, and sometimes we got to fight it out. But there is um, Stuart Rachel's, who is a professor at uh, the University of Texas. Um, and a world-class uh, chess champion as well, uh, interestingly aside. He, um, he has written um, a number of books on this idea. He's a philosophy uh, professor at uh, UTEX, and I thought it was interesting. I was reading some of, some of his writings on this idea about the social contract, and one in particular stood out that um, morality, and this is a, a, just a, a summation of one of his uh, points of writing is the set of rules governing behavior that rational people accept on the condition that others accept them too. And I thought that's really interesting because all of the virtue and philosophy and, and higher level engagement really doesn't work if nobody else is willing to agree to those conditions as well. I will not kill under any circumstances, is really not much of an effective argument against somebody who is going to happily take your life to take your food and your resources in this sort of right, thing. Right, um, right. So there is a point where that there is a, a, a very uh, flexible gap in the stability of the social contract to break down. And we have, again many, many times through the course of modern and ancient history have we seen that breakdown take place. What's interesting, for, for the most part, at least in Western society, for the most part, even when we've had major failings of the social contract, um, we do tend to find our way back. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it's not in the same way. Um, and, and, and same structures, but it, it's interesting how we do tend to 
dig ourselves out of the rubble, so to speak, and find our way back to some semblance of of reengaging this so-called social contract. What do you think of that? I found it intriguing and read the same same piece, by the way. So <laughs> well, there you go. I did, I did find it interesting. Well, you know, and, and, and believe it or not, what we tend to do just for dear listeners is we go read as many sides as we can to kind of prepare for this discussion. Mm. And so I read the debunking of it. I, I also read the support of it and read some documents in between. And I was just interested to see how it was framed from all sides. And, and so... Uh, I, I don't disagree that we tend to find our way back to some kind of societal structure. You know, we saw the breakdown of German society with yeah. the, the Holocaust and uh, Germans who had prided themselves on being incredibly civilized uh, throughout the Dark Ages and into through the Enlightenment and into modern day uh, sort of went through a, a decade of just irrationality uh, and then afterwards returned very quickly to the underpinnings of their society. Uh, and so to your point, when despots violate, uh, the fabric of society, the way Hitler did or, or Mao Zedong or, 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 uh, uh, Joseph Stalin or any of yeah. those, those tyrants yeah. who, who did mass execution, uh, societies tend to correct and sometimes overcorrect afterwards and, um, try to fix it. Now, I, I don't know that that's necessarily happened in China. We don't have the view uh, into Chinese society that we do in more Western cultures, simply because they truly are a closed society in, in that respect. You may have a better insight into that than I do because you actually live there. And, and I'll pause for a moment so you can address that specifically. <laughs> well, it's hard to say because China and and Russia to some extent as well, but in a different way um, or, or to a lesser degree maybe. Um, but not much. Uh, they sort of are this weird amalgamation of, of that sort of authoritarian. Uh, they like their strong men. <laughs> well, but they've been, the people have been taught to. And, and right. China is one of those places where we're actually seeing what the, the, you talk about Germany, for an example. Hitler was, quote, defeated. And so we see in German society and in their interaction with the Western world what the, the, the forward movement of their society looks like when the, quote, bad guy was defeated. China's right. an interesting case because in China, the bad guy was not defeated, not in our Western sensibility. China right. came in with the, uh, the Cultural Revolution which happened again in Russia, you know, with the Bolsheviks. I mean, that, that, that idea is not an unusual one. And in Russia, for a time, the bad guy, so to speak, was not uh, defeated. You know, the Bolsheviks came in, then we had Lenin, Lenin came to Stalin. And even though there was eventually a breakdown in the Russian communist system and that sort of authoritarian government, I don't think anyone is under the impression that that isn't still very much sort of the, even though they're, quote, a democratic society on paper, it, it, there are a lot of questions as to how democratic it really is. Um, Any of the former Soviet states tend to have some kind of authoritarianism, yes. including Ukraine, by the way. And, yeah. and so 
in, I, I find it interesting. I think your point is right. And by the way, Russians traded one form of tyrants for another. You know, they deposed the czar. They had a little brief period. Well, of that's exactly the between. point. That, <laughs> and that went is right exactly back to what it. they had with the communists. And that is so. that is that is historically a common thing that happens. Is that you know the people rise up uh, to to put down an oppressor. And in the absence of the old oppressor, they install a new one. By the way, we almost did exactly the same thing here. For those, I know you know this, um, and for those who may not, uh, after Washington was victorious, George Washington, in defeating the British as the leader of the Continental Army, uh, the, those in the Continental Congress, I think it was still called at the time, they offered him the kingship. They said, okay, you, you deserve the crown. Well, and he, uh, you know, I have a lot of issues with Washington, but I'll, I'll tip my hat to this one. He said, you got to be kidding. What did we just fight for? <laughs> you know, to not. Well, and be. to your point, Alexander <laughs> Hamilton, his, who was yep. his aide de camp or his chief of staff, continued to propose that the presidency be a lifetime appointment and, and mm-hmm. that it would uh, end on the death of the president. So, so Hamilton, the hero of the musical, by the way, yeah. was not a real Republican kind of guy. He, he liked the idea of a strong central president who, who had a lifetime position and, uh, and to the credit of, of the other, uh, founders, uh, when he proposed the idea in the, uh, constitutional, um, convention, uh, the note that, uh, Madison makes in his writings is that his proposals were met with stunned silence. Mm-hmm. As if that guy's nuts. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I <laughs> well, think it, we do. It, it, I think yeah. as as human beings, we tend to look for that strong, strong leadership, even when it's painful. Uh, there's a still a monarchical movement in the, in North America that's very. Uh, it, it may be a minority, but there's still a strong movement for monarchy and the restoration of monarchy. Well, we love uh, we love the uh, the royal family over on the other side of the pond. Yeah, I, I mean, never got that. I, I don't I, I don't I don't get it either. I I I mean I'm gonna. <laughs> I think William and Kate and Princess Diane. There have been some people that, at least to the extent that I know, seem to be really respectable, upstanding people and engaged in in ways that I can certainly acknowledge. Um, but as an American, and this is where my American sensibilities come in, the idea on many levels uh, of a, a a level of a caste system, if you if we want to call it that, uh, or compare it to that, where it doesn't matter what you achieve, how high you go, there is a point you cannot get above, and we don't have that in America. I mean, there is perhaps an unspoken degree, but it's really still people smash that glass ceiling all the time, uh, and and come from very little and go to the very top as much as one can in this country. And I think that is one of our virtues here. Um, but j- just quickly to, to circle back uh, to the question of China, I think it's interesting. China is an interesting uh, place to observe in our world. Uh, North Korea would be another one to some degree, though I don't know that they were ever a, a free democracy in the sense we're talking about. Um, but China had the opportunity to really pursue a government of the people, as we think of it. Um, the uh, people's revolution took place. They It was horrible. I, I can just tell you for having been there, having seen firsthand some of what is still the results of that uh, terrible, terrible atrocities. And it wasn't any different for the Bolsheviks or anything like that. But 
uh, a, a lot of their culture and history and material uh, recognition of, of who they were as a people was destroyed in this uh, idea that they needed to reform themselves. And as, as we just discussed, they replaced one uh, dictatorship with another, uh, what, what is now, you know, we know of as communism. And in their case, it never went away. It stayed right there. And so we are uh, living with a generation. There are people who are dissidents, but a significant generation, uh, multiple generations of people who were raised with the idea that that is a perfectly fine, acceptable approach to governance. And they don't have a problem with it. And because we have economically decided it was to our benefit not to uh, be against China uh, and engage them with manufacturing and all this, that, and the other, in many ways, uh, at least in the, in the cities, there, there's a huge dichotomy between uh, the, the poor and the working class of China and the modern uh, Shanghai's where we lived, um, you know, modern world of China. Um, and it's, it's an incredible dichotomy. It's hard to describe in, in, in a sentence. But uh, we talked with a number of people, and, you know, we, we actually lived there during one of their, quote, elections. And we talked with a number of people that uh, we engaged with in our, our, our lives and said, you know, what do you think about the elections? Half of them didn't even know it was happening, and for those that did, they didn't care. They said, how's that our problem? You know, it's not our job to, to be involved with that because that's how they've been taught. That, right, right. You, know, you just, uh, uh, Papa Xi, I think they refer to him. Uh, you know, Daddy Xi, Dada, Xi Dada, they call him, uh, will take care of us. We don't have to worry about it. And, you know, there it is. So if you want to really look at what happens when the dictator wins, <laughs> you know, and yeah. there it is. Now we could talk about that vis a vis Cuba. Where, and again, to my bafflement, they had, you know, communism move into there. Of course, they had their revolution, uh, traded one for another, and, and had, um, you know, their various dictators uh, step in, in place. And we have decided they were not worth engaging. We had no economic benefit to get from them, I guess. So we have continued to boycott and, and put aside. That's a whole other episode. But it is interesting. I say this because we did not engage with Cuba, and Cuba still looks like 1954 or whatever it is. And right, uh, right. we did engage with China because we had an economic reason why it benefited us. And China, in many ways, looks very much like a modern society uh, fully. I have never seen inside right. the gates of, of North Korea, but... You know, we can probably draw some some conclusions on that. Too. I've 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 done some research on North Korea, and I've read some books from folks who got out of North Korea, including one really interesting one where uh, until the mid to late 1980s, Japanese were sending Koreans who lived in Japan back to North Korea, uh, mm. and uh, one of these guys who was half Japanese, half Korean, wrote a book after he finally got back out of Korea how uh, the Japanese essentially refused to, to recognize his citizenship, even though he was born and raised in Japan. In Japan, mm. he, he was a young teenager when they sent him to Korea. And, and 
Yeah. I, I've, and I've talked to folks who've been in South Korea in the military and what they tell me, their Korean friends say when they meet someone from the North, it's like speaking to someone from a hundred years ago, that, yeah. that their language is that far behind. And so, and again, this is, this is a society that's held together by a social contract where a uh, supreme leader is to be thanked for everything. And I've seen documentaries where uh, Doctors Without Borders would go in and do ophthalmic surgery on people to give them back their sight, uh, cataract surgery, things of that nature. And as soon as they were done, uh, the patient would go in front of a picture of, of the leader, whichever um, Kim, Kim Jong Un. Jong, yeah. And then there's the other three names, you know, Il, his father, Un, the son, and grandson. Yeah, yeah. Il, Un, and I can't remember the oldest one. Yeah. Um, they would stand in front of the picture and thank him, not the doctor. They would thank him for their eyes getting better. And I found it quite intriguing. And I think when you're outside the system, you look at that and you say, that's odd. Well, they would look at some of the stuff we do and say, this, that's really odd. <laughs> well, you can't forget two things. One, they've been raised to... Uh, to legitimately believe that is the appropriate thing to do. But the other thing is, for those who may not internally believe that that's the appropriate thing to do, they know that if they don't do it, there could be severe consequences. So, you know, there there is a level of fear that uh, dictates people's behavior, and I think it's a very high level of fear in places like that, but it's not unique there. Uh, China, certainly people are listening and people have been known to disappear. I think for more extreme uh, 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 failings than failing to, to, to thank a photograph. But, uh, you know, there are major issues that happen. And in Russia, things still happen. Again, probably oh, sure. for something more significant than failing to thank a photograph. But uh, <laughs> people can disappear. And this is one of the things. Now, to be fair, terrible atrocities can happen in this country and have happened in this country, too. But I don't they think have. they're quite as commonplace and even expected as you would find in some of these places. Oh, Social agreed. Contract. Agreed. So yeah. rounding, rounding back in. Uh, you know, Immanuel Kant said that the the social contract was when the uh, and let me get the quote right, because I will misquote him if I don't get it right. Uh, depends on the united will of a whole people, a united mm -hmm. will of a whole people. A and he was convinced that this was required because it would secure an ingredient of consistency. A and so that's where I start to have some problems with this idea. What exactly is the united will of the whole people? If I, I go back, let's say, uh, just, just, Okay, we'll go back. I'll take an easy one before I leap into something really controversial. You go back to 1900 U.S. society. The united will of the people was we don't involve ourselves in foreign wars. Mm -hmm. We don't get involved in world wars. We don't get involved in European wars specifically. What happens in this hemisphere is our business. You all stay out of our hemisphere, and we'll stay out of yours. You know, it was we'll take called care the, of the Monroe Americans. Doctrine. Take... Right, right. Yeah. And, and while we talk that talk. We didn't always practice that talk. We, we had the Spanish-American War. We had the Philippines War. We had the Haitian Wars. You know, those things did happen. They're, they're little known in our history. Uh, but but other than the Philippine War, we tended to be pretty, pretty much staying in the Americas other than 1863 or 4 when, when the U.S. busted open the door to Japan. Um, which, which we did. They, we rolled into the harbor and said, you're going to trade with us whether you like it or not. <laughs> and so 
Uh, but generally, as a rule, we, we did that. And apparently, the United will the people not to get involved in war. Uh, and Woodrow Wilson was elected, re-elected, with the idea he wouldn't get us in the First World War. That was promptly ignored once he was re-elected. <laughs> and so, uh, so was the social contract then violated when the United will the people was one way and our leaders decide to go a different way. And so I'll pause there. That's a lot I just threw out there really fast. <laughs> well, I think that you you have to you have to look at some of these uh, will of the people concepts with a, a higher level perspective because sometimes the will of the people is right. And sometimes the will of the people is wrong. Uh, you know, I was going to go to one of the wrong ones, but I thought I'd be a little <laughs> less controversial. <laughs> no, no, no. It's and and we hope, and, and this is where you have to be willing to offer a little bit of patience, a little bit of patience on on us as a people. And when I say us as a people, I mean on we the, the species of humans. There, there is not an exact science to this thing. You know, despite what uh, the Bible and the Torah and everyone else may say. We have not been handed a definitive, this is how uh, things shall, shall be done from on high. Um, at least we don't all believe we have. And we have to figure this this thing out as we go. Um, <laughs> I can't remember which astrophysicist it was, but uh, an interesting version of that is he said, being in astrophysics is like trying to discover how the universe works in a scientific sense at least is like trying to learn how to play chess by watching people play it and figuring out the rules. You don't, you, you know, based on observation. You just look and see, these are the consistencies we're seeing, so that must be a rule. And that's kind of the, the path we're walking as a people. Um, you know, over the couple hundred thousands of years we've been around, uh, not millions, hundreds of thousands, we have gradually figured out that this approach is maybe safer and and more uh, advantageous to longevity than that approach and then we could take the next step and go from there and sometimes we take the wrong step <laughs> I, th I see katie's raising her head in agreement with me behind you uh, well uh, or, or she thinks you're crazy <laughs> or perhaps <laughs> perhaps so you know this idea of the will of the people uh i think there are numerous examples i probably don't need to cite uh, most of them where the will of the people was wrong in something. And there are certainly examples where the will of the people probably was right as well. Um, and right and wrong are still relative concepts even within that. Our hope is that we elect leaders, at least in a democratic society, um, or constitutional republic, is that what we call ourselves? Uh, yes, yes, we're a constitutional um, republic. But the, we have democratic elections. Yes. So, But the idea is that we are hopefully putting our trust in leaders that can see the things that we cannot see. And, and again, this is very un, idealistic, but the idea that I don't sit in the, I don't sit in the, the, the Oval Office, I don't hear the briefings every day, I don't know what is going on at a level that hopefully our responsible leaders do, and, and therefore I'm entrusting them to fill in the gaps uh, of my ignorance with informed decision-making. I think it's a completely different debate we could go down as to whether Woodrow Wilson was right or not to get into World War I, 
and I, I'm not even going to express an opinion because, frankly, I think there are good arguments on well, both and, sides. And we of that. actually did a very early episode on that that issue on foreign, yeah, uh, yeah, foreign on, engagement well, and, and war and, and so forth. And I talked at, at length about World War One. I. I, I think it was with you. I, I, I yeah, no, we, we had one of those episodes. Yeah, yeah. So and and, 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 and World War One was a funny thing because that was a family conflict in which the people were being dragged into, and it turned and and the results of that led directly in both both the results of that and the results of society's uh, engagement in the aftermath of that with the Germans specifically led directly into its continuation chapter two or volume two if you want it called World War II which was there you know a straight line of of, of uh, digression but it is interesting because as you say, it is a common thing. It's not a new idea that uh, our leaders are elected on an idea that we, they have given that they will move forward as, as the will of the people has made clear they want. And then when they get into office, they do something else. And sometimes that something yes. else is, is, is terrible. Um, and sometimes I think maybe it's necessary, even if the people don't want it, there may be information there that we are just simply not able to uh, fully appreciate. It's it's a hard well, that, balance. Well, that's that was an argument we heard at the beginning of the Gulf War, the second Gulf War, uh, that that they were privy to information. That Let we me be clear. And, and I don't always what, believe that argument holds water. Uh, oh, no, I'm no, just no. saying that it's the I, argument. I, I, I hope anyone who's listened to us for a while doesn't <laughs> understands that we're just saying that's the reasoning that's given. Yes. Uh, yeah. We're not advocating that they were right. Uh, in fact, I I would advocate usually they're wrong when it comes to war. Um, you know, and, and and speaking specifically to that election before we move on, there was a pro-war candidate in that election. His name was Teddy Roosevelt, and he, mm -hmm. and he ran with the Progressive Party, and Americans clearly rejected his ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, Wilson won a plurality of the vote, but if you look at the combination of Wilson and Taft, uh, the two anti-war candidates, they won a majority of American votes against that war, yet there we were, you know, a year later, or less than a year later, we were heavily involved in that war. And there are reasons why, and, and we can talk about that another episode. But uh, I think it's. Again, I, I just want to. I want to add. You know, we can certainly disagree with the warmongering that has been often the approach of our leaders, and, and we've we've certainly talked about that in various ways. But I will say this: Teddy Roosevelt gets a little bit of, of respect from me. Well, he put his money where his mouth was. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, is is he not the only acting president that's actually? It's, uh, correct me if my, my history is confused here. I know that he led uh, one very famous battle. Um, was it San Juan? Um, San Juan? The Battle of San Juan Hill. Yeah. He was a part of that battle, and, and his his was he president his at the time? Unit went up. No, he wasn't president at the time, but he was a uh, he was a government official. I think he was an undersecretary okay, of the Navy, and, and so he was one of the few government government officials. Who, That's what I'm thinking. In a combat yes. zone. Yes. Which, is, which uh, you and, just and don't hear way, about that today. No. The senator from South Carolina is uh, a reserve officer. Drives me nuts. I'm not a fan of his. Um, Lindsey Graham? Is that his I name? Didn't, I, didn't, uh, I didn't know he was a reserve officer. Yes. Uh, I had no clue, but he apparently is another one who, who, as much as he loves his war, he puts his money where his mouth is. So, Well, uh, here's the question, though. When you're in a Lindsey Graham position, are you able to defer? I I don't know. Uh, I think he probably <laughs> didn't. But 
uh, again, do you think, you know, Al Gore's the son of, of Senator Albert Gore. Uh, when Al Gore served in Vietnam, I've talked to guys who ran across him in Vietnam. They said he was traveling with a group of bodyguards everywhere he went. You know, they're not going to have the son of a, 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 a very powerful senator from Tennessee get shot in a combat zone. Mm. Uh, much different than World War II, where lots of sons of politicians were killed in that war. Uh, much different uh, than the Pat Tillmans of the world who who were killed in in the Gulf War, you know, after 9-11. Yeah. So, so there are exceptions to the rules, but oftentimes, you know, some sitting... I think um, the governor of Florida is also a National Guardsman or a reserve officer. And, and mm. so I'm pretty sure those guys may go into theater. I wonder how close they get to the front lines sometimes, you know. It's one of those well, things, it, you know. What, whatever I think of your, your politics, not yours, but, uh, well, I, I, you know what I think of your politics. But <laughs> whatever. I, yes, you know I'm right about everything and we're slowly converting you. But anyway. <laughs> I, I think I, it is a lot easier to, to get behind somebody who's willing to, to lead and, and put their own uh, skin in the game, so to speak, um, well, as opposed to running ahead. And, you know, I think that's an interesting transition as we're, as we're moving forward in our hour here, one of the most recent and controversial failings of the social contract is, of course, uh, the, the January 6th events down in D.C. And it is not the only time we've had uh, an issue uh, of, of that. Um, it's, there is a unique character in modern history to what happened there. Um, but we have certainly had a number of high profile, let me put it that way, um, failings uh, in in mass of of the social contract, as it were, um, and we started to talk about this earlier. I want to tie this into something we mentioned a little earlier in the show, which what um, the question I wanted to ask you is talking about how when we've had these massive failings, such as Germany in the in uh, the nineteen thirties and. You know, you could argue that uh, our civil war was a failing of the social contract oh, on different levels and so forth. But despite whatever horror and atrocities took place during these terrible periods that these societies, ours, our own included, did, <laughs> perhaps painfully, but did somehow find their way back to, you know, some resemblance of an equilibrium in as a society. Um, but it's interesting to me how frequently such major breakdowns of this social contract uh, are, are instigated by a handful, maybe sometimes an individual. I mean, we give Hitler all the credit, but he had lots of help. You know, there, he wasn't the only one who was masterminding no, all these things. Um, he had plenty of support, but there were probably, if you really want to break down the top, I would say a handful of people, you know, with Hitler as, as the head, there were a handful of really individually influential uh, power brokers in, in some of these things. And, and they brought in a, a group of people who brought in a wider group of people until you have an, a, a large societal level breakdown. And even in, you know, protests, uh, you know, things like the January 6th, um, whatever the case may be, it's interesting because certainly a, a large group of people were engaged, but 
I wonder, you know, if we look at where were the where was the instigation of this kind of what led to these things without saying it was Trump and Trump alone, because uh, I don't think it was Trump and Trump alone. Um, he he certainly had the the biggest microphone and the highest profile presence in some of that discourse that led to that. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of debate that can be made about that statement. But I I find it interesting how people in the plural can sort of fall into these breakdowns of that social contract very easily, it seems. And I don't know. Am I wrong I think, about that? I think those folks on the scene that day, just like the year before with the BLM protests where society broke down for a while, I think those folks thought they were truly in the right. I think the January 6th folks thought that they were trying to steal the election. Uh, whether you agree with them or not, I'm not going to say one way or the other. We've already done an episode about that. Uh, but I think they truly believe that. And I think the folks the year before thought that there was still some serious racism going on in this country. And, and I, I find it interesting, the framing of those things in that I think it was a small group of actors in both incidences. And I look at both incidences because they're only a year apart, you know, essentially they're a year apart, a year and a half apart. And, and I look at both of them where we saw a small group of bad actors either smash out the windows in the Capitol, go through and open the doors, which we have video of them doing that, or throwing Molotov cocktails and bricks through buildings and burning them down. And you and I talked about it when it was happening. Why are you burning private property? Your, your, your rage may be, uh, <laughs> may be rightfully directed at, at things, but why are you burning down private businesses and going nuts like that? And so in both cases, I think it's a small group of bad actors and a whole lot of people who think they're fighting for the right stuff. You know, we're here for justice and truth and, and all the American ideals that we, we supposedly hold dear to our heart. And in both cases, bad actors paint with a broad brush and it looks awful from the perspective of folks who are watching downtown areas in, in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota on fire. And, and most people were peaceful protesters, whether we, we want to believe that or not. I, I think most people had uh, the best of intentions to fight for what they thought was right. And that was uh, an equality that they, they had perceived that wasn't ex didn't exist in Minnesota at that time. Isn't that where that whole incident started, right? It was Minnesota. Well, it was with, with the... Uh, you know, the Floyd incident was in Minnesota, yeah. wasn't it? But, yeah. you know, so, looting and riots are not a new concept. And no. it's and I think that, as you say, often there is a legitimate injustice that has been either realistically engaged or uh, or perceptively engaged. And in, in, in those two cases, uh, and when when that happens, you have a group, a, a group of virtuous people who just simply want to offer reasonable legal protest, which is a constitutional right. And you also have people who are looking for an excuse, and I firmly believe this, to just rage anarchy um, and, and, and burn, burn down the house such as it is. And I do think sometimes there is a time to burn down the house. Uh, I think that is a realistic uh, approach sometimes, that when there really is an atrocity at a level that a societal level of atrocity that just simply cannot be allowed to continue. The French certainly engaged that uh, in, when the, with their revolutions. I mean, almost every society has had some form of revolution. And often that revolution 
is based on, you know, real and, and legitimate gripes, <laughs> so to speak, and atrocities that have been been yep. levied on the people. And they finally say enough is enough. Um, and if we can handle it in a peaceful way, then we should. But if change must happen and the peaceful approach isn't getting us there, then it is time for an uprising. And Haiti went through this. Now, argue whatever you want of the, the modern Haiti. iteration of Haiti, but they had a good reason to, to rise up. Um, and to some degree, they succeeded. Now, what ha- followed, you know, we can argue. But we, we need to do an episode on Haiti because that's a three sided war. Those never end well. Well, they never absolutely, end well. Absolutely. And, there, and there's no so right and wrong. We, we should. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about Haiti. Well, there were literally three sides fighting each other in, in Haiti in the early, early, uh, whether it be 19th century. And, and I had no clue until I went there and somebody, a Haitian started talking to me. He said, man, you really need to study this. Yeah. This is this is a bizarre occurrence. Uh, but but. I, I agree with you, and we, and you know, the French Revolution, of course, turns into tyranny, as as many revolutionary oh, yeah. revolutions do. Napoleon um, wasn't exactly as, as, of the Enlightenment, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, in Robespierre, you know, everybody's head was getting cut off, including yeah. his eventually, and then we have the Soviet um, Revolution. That, the Chinese, that turns the, the into pe- atrocity, the the People's yeah. Revolution and, in China. All of and, these can be. On I mean, on. Cuban. The Cuban Revolution, you know, Che Guevara, all of these, you know, I think that they started with a legitimate gripe that perhaps really did warrant revolution. But the form that the revolution took and the outcome is is questionable. Now, to use the two examples of the the um, uh, January 6th and, and, and uh, the Black Lives Matter uh wasn't exactly a revolution, but certainly protests that got out of hand. Protests, we'll call it. yeah. Um, I, I think you have to, I mean, th- those are not apples to apples comparisons, in my humble opinion. I mean, the, the, George Floyd was a ridiculous atrocity on the, at the end of a line of any number of atrocities that became high profile attacks by the police against black people. And we will have a separate debate on on that uh, and, and some of Well, the, it won't be much of a debate. It'll just be some finite differences yeah. <laughs> between the two of us. Well, and, and um, there are some legitimate arguments to, to be made uh, in, in, in underst- having a, a more accurate understanding of the perception of these things. But I think it's very interesting, um, the, <laughs> the recent things that have come out on, on the side of Fox News about some of the rhetoric in the modern version of that word uh, around the elections, uh, supposed fraud and, and other things, and their admittance very recently of, yeah, they were absolutely aware that they were uh, not speaking the truth to their audience um, and, and promoting a, uh, a, a, a dishonesty that uh, was not necessarily the case, and it had an effect. It was very much a driving force behind uh, the understanding of a lot of those uh, January 6 people and those who weren't necessarily there but certainly in agreement with their gripe uh, that was was not true. Now is that a new idea? No, we've had all kinds of political manipulations and and, and so forth that have led people astray. Um, but it it I think there is a difference in what was driving that and certainly, 
you cannot take away the responsibility of the sitting president on that day who it's on tape said let we're going to march down there and we're going to you know on the day of the uh, it was the certification of the election that day correct right by, right by the congress right and, and we're going to and we're going to make our voices heard and, yes. and he did uh, and um, then he well, came no, on he later didn't. and said to go home and well, he didn't uh, he said we are, and then he disappeared, and sent, and they went down, and he stayed silent during the course of it. That is exactly how that well, went down. He, he did come and tell him to go home, and they went home. Uh, and we know that now from those tapes that Fox released, uh, where the so-called QAnon shaman says, "Our president has asked us to go home, and we're not Antifa, so let's go home." And off they went, and they all went home. So yeah, that's so not that my understanding happen. of 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 the timeline of that whole thing. I, from so, what I understand, they he, were. They were significantly trying to get him to engage, and he stayed silent for an extended period. And then well, eventually, that's, that's the narrative. And, and I think that the, what's going on there, and, and by the way, I hate them all equal. <clears throat> Nancy Pelosi screwed up. She's in charge of the Capitol she, as the Speaker of the House. She was asked by the Capitol Police multiple times to please get the reserve or the National Guard on site to help with the crowds. She refused over and over. The National Guard was sitting in a parking garage in multiple parking garages very close to the site and were left there. Uh, so I, I think what we're seeing is a lot of rhetoric in the bad way going back and forth and who's responsible, who's responsible. And whether you like Fox or not, I, I do like the fact that all the video has now been released. Now, there's 20,000 hours of video out there. Mm -hmm. Nobody has gone through all 20,000 of those hours right now. Let's be real honest about that. Whether it be Fox, who cherry-picked what they want, whether it be the January 6th committee, who cherry-picked what they wanted to, to, to have. Well, the one thing I found inter interesting, though, is good. the guy, the QAnon shaman, his attorney said, I never even knew the videos existed. And so there's a breach there of the law in that any evidence that could exonerate his client has to be produced by the prosecution and the prosecution intentionally sat on that. And I find that very disturbing. Well, again, that, that goes into a world that I can't speak intelligently about. And as far as Nancy Pelosi and her response and other people in their response to it, all of that, we can certainly have a, a, a debate over, but the Future fact discussion. is that that's the <laughs> aftermath. The, 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 the revolution had already taken place at that point. And it wasn't a revolution. It was a no, protest. Well, that's why I put my. That's what I put my hand up. Yeah, in I, I saw you do the. Quote, we have video. I, I can do that. See your <laughs> um, so. And and but no, I think a lot of people there were there under the impression that we are going to uh, engage a revolution, uh, and 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 do this. Others were going to engage anarchy, and some were there to simply uh, protest their feelings in a healthy way. Um, but the fact of the matter is that. There, a few people in high places made some decisions that reverberated down into the masses. And the masses, uh, which, again, I think to my larger point, historically throughout the world, it is interesting to me how quickly the masses are, are willing to engage in um, in these these breakdowns of that social Pit, contract, pitchforks and torches, man. Pitch, Absolutely, pitchforks and torches. We're we're not far from that at any point in society, no matter how civilized we think we are. Mm -hmm. I I think the big issue I have with this whole idea of a social contract, which I I don't recognize, I never signed it, I'm not obligated to it, <laughs> is this idea that that I am owed, I owe something 
to the greater good. And, and, and you know, I've served in multiple aspects of society as a whole, voluntarily so. I, I raised my right hand when I was 17. I went into the school system when I was 40. I, I've done this over and over in my life. So I'm not, I'm not against public service in and of itself of any kind. But I, I don't particularly think I owe anything uh, to, to the, quote, greater good. In, in light of multiple aspects, first off, if there were a social contract, the other side hasn't upheld their side of it. If they say, I belong to this contract, and I want to hit this point before we wrap up here, police are not obligated to protect me. The courts have found it over and over and over again. There is no obligation by any law enforcement official to protect lives. And and they've done it over and over. Every time they've been sued because some woman uh, got beaten up or some guy got molested or whatever the case may be, the courts have said, this isn't an obligation of police. And this manifested itself very recently when we had the school shooting in Florida that you and I have referred to a couple of times. And the cops sat outside and let it happen. They did not go in. Uh, happened in Las Vegas when that maniac was shooting down at that concert. The cops waited 75 minutes to go in and stop that guy. 75 minutes before they went into that room. And those folks those law enforcement officials were not held accountable because there is no obligation to put their lives in danger to save people. And well, I, I think I think that's to, to be clear. I think that's a really important point. Uh, while you're right, there's no obligation at all. I think the idea is that there's no obligation to put their lives at risk over yours. And so, right. whether it says serve and protect, uh, they're not protecting. <laughs> it, well, they don't have to. They don't have to, to the degree that a doctor has an obligation to, to help somebody in, who's sick. They have taken an oath that no matter what, they will do no harm, even harm by inaction. And, and I think that's an interesting conversation, and we should do an episode on that. Because in my humble opinion, I think they should have to take an oath I, to protect. I, and I'm not, I'm, you and I yeah. are not disagreeing on this issue whatsoever. <laughs> but my point is, is once the... Rulers and police work for the rulers, whether we like it or not. That's who who they work for. Once the rulers have no have uh, not fulfilled their end of the contract, then they're in breach, and the contract no longer exists. So even if there was a social contract, I would argue today there is no social contract, and and that's probably the point of my argument in all of this. We see this over and over with too big to fail, which may come and rear its ugly head again 10 years later. Yeah. We see this over and over <laughs> Interestingly. With, with law enforcement. We see this over and over with government that favors one side over another, whether it be whites over blacks or liberals over conservatives. And I'm just throwing things out. Don't think I'm implying one thing or the other. You notice I went two different ways with my last mm -hmm. two statements. Uh, you know, we see this over and over. And if government indeed does not hold up its end of the contract, there is no contract. And so I, I think that's really my point. Well, and I, I just a couple of quick things in response to that. You know, what you're saying, and I don't disagree with, with your sentiment, um, but your sentiment is based on the idea that may or may not be true, which is that that contract is between a government and, its, and the leadership of a people and the people itself, the body of the people. And in many ways, that contract is exactly that. But I think that there is also the social contract of the people, by the people, and amongst the people. And we have that between ourselves. The problem is 
the body that enforces that social contract to some degree, uh, and at least where our legal system comes in, is the, the government leadership. And so we have this difference between explicit contractual obligations and implicit contractual obligations. The explicit ones are the ones laid down by laws, by, you could even argue, all the way up to our Constitution on a, on a societal level. And the implicit ones are, you know, I, the, the unspoken agreements that we just simply adhere to because it gets us through the day in a more pleasant well, way. Act like you have some sense. Be respectful yes. of one another. Those yeah. that I don't know that's even a social contract. That's just that is the fabric. Well, well, I say that to say that's sense, sort of the debate yeah. of what is the nature yeah. of of. The, a social contract, if not the. And anyone who's listened to our show knows that we both agree that you got to act like you have some sense and you have yeah. some home training. And we don't see a lot of it exhibited in modern society. So neither of us are arguing against that. We're, we're I'm simply arguing that there is no social contract, and even if there were, they're in, they're in violation and and should be brought to. Uh, I don't know. Whatever the case may be. So here's my question for you. Then. Here's my question. Uh, in your opinion, so this is an opinion, ladies and gentlemen, should there be? Should there be a social contract? No. Yeah. No. There there should be, this is an opinion. All right. This is a whole nother episode because I, I'm going to open up a big giant can of worms. There should be, uh, there should be governance based on community. And I I think I've hinted about this on multiple episodes over and over. I think that these huge super governments that we see in modern society, whether it be China, Russia, or our own, or our own, mm -hmm. have gotten so big they cannot conform to the will of the people. There's just an inability because which will do they conform to? Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy here in my local community to look at my school system and say, we have to fix that. I mean, that's not a big shocker, I think, as most communities in America. But what we do now with these super governments is we say the government needs to fix that. And consequently we've lost ownership in this. And so, um, so you, you would know, argue that there's, that there, there shouldn't be a government based social contract, but it sounds to me like still what you're talking about is there is a social be, contract. It's just on well, a more it's a community local level. Base, it's community, yeah. you know, a proper community, a local and, community. And this argument, a local community, a proper local community bands together to help one another out by its very nature of the way human beings are. We, we don't we watch those pictures of uh, children starving in the desert and we pull out our wallets and we do what we should do. We send money to p children starving in the desert because we find that incredibly sad. And I think charity given voluntarily and service given voluntarily is the highest form of society we have. And I would argue that this idea of a social contract undermines that idea of voluntarism for the benefit of mankind and, and for your local community. And so that would be my argument. I, I know it's a really, it sounds like a really small difference, but I think it's really huge if you start to ponder. No, I hear what you're saying. I, 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 don't, I don't know that I would fully align with it, but I would say this, uh, that to me, you're still talking about a social contract. It's just one based more on implied or implicit aspects of our understanding as opposed to maybe, legally maybe this should be two episodes and we didn't think we'd get one out of it i i, I think that that things done voluntarily yeah. are huge and i think it is the basis of modern modern culture and society uh, i i also think it has been perverted 
by people, usually men, who have a desire to use it for their own personal gain. Power and, and gain. Yes, and, and absolute power. And so when I look at a society and a nation that, that I was raised to have a great deal of respect for, and I see men and, and some women go into government with no money and come mm. out multi-multi-millionaires, I'm sorry, I smell a rat. <laughs> I smell a rat. <laughs> and, and something bad is going on. And, and consequently, this idea of a social contract that I have to let these people decide what's best for me, mm. I, I reject that idea. I do. And... Uh, I've seen how our military is treated. I've seen how our teachers are treated. I've seen how good police officers are treated when they try to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I see this over, and, and let's be honest, some good politicians who try to do the right thing. And I see this over and over and over again. And so um, I still I still um, have a great deal of respect for folks who serve in office. Uh, some are just more worthy of respect than others. So we'll leave it at that before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> so. Well, and, and again, in a war, in a government of by and for the people, um, which you know can be debatable, but you know we have to remember that they are the people too, and uh, they are the people that perhaps are not held, you know, in many ways to the standard of the rest of the people, um, and that's something that is should be. In the power of the people to to remedy, um, if we actually wield that power that uh, we are supposed to have, um, and with that roundabout way of getting to that point, we probably should wrap this up. Well, it, it, it's an important point. I'm glad you got to it. I really am. I, I think it's important. But we should wrap yeah. up. We're we're probably a little bit over an hour now. Uh, well, and so uh, first off, thank you. Go ahead. No, I just it's. I think this is an interesting conversation that probably is something. We most of us don't think about at the level of this, and and really we should because we do live, whether we like it or not, in a society both locally and and lo and nationally and globally, and to some degree the the philosophy of the social contract um, is I think a an important one to consider, um, and I agree to some degree that uh, the majority of it should live in the world of implied. Agreement. It's implicit that we are kind to each other because that is a better way to live through, live our lives. Um, unfortunately, not everybody agrees to that particular uh, approach, and this is where the explicit comes in. Where, well, then I need a, there to be a law that you can't just come over and kill me because you were having a bad day. <laughs> but, oh, oh, uh, yeah. You know the grumpy monkey theory. I was grumpy that day. Yeah, no, we're no. not having that. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. so there, there no, is listen, a degree. Thank there. you for letting me. Thank you for letting me take us down this road. I, I don't, you know, I, I come up with some of these uh, ideas for a show. And you look at me cross-eyed and say, really, you think we're going to get an hour out of that? And <laughs> this one was one of those where I think you weren't completely thrilled with the idea, but you went along with me. And I appreciate your willingness to just have this discussion. I think you've done justice of, of, of exploring the issue with someone who's pretty, as you heard at the end of, my, of this episode, I'm pretty hard over on one side on this issue. But you've, you've done a really good job of, of allowing me to articulate my side pretty well. And you've brought up some objections to my side that I think merit thought. And believe me, I've thought about this for a long time. It's not that I came to this conclusion one morning. It's I've watched the tearing of the fabric of society uh, in sometimes good ways and sometimes bad. Mm -hmm. And I'm very concerned that 
uh, we could be leveraged in a January 6th-like incident to do awful, awful things uh, to our fellow man. And that really does concern me, yep. particularly if it comes from our government. And so if I'm wrong and you're right, and, and this was done by bad actors at very high offices, um, that's even more disturbing to me, even more so. Well, I will just say this. So, I think that manipulation happens, period. I don't think any of us will debate oh, that. all the time. Now, some, of, some people see manipulation... Uh, where perhaps there isn't as to the same degree. Some people see simple leadership where others see manipulation. It, it, it is what it is. I think that the important part for people, for all of us to remember is that we make a choice. We make a choice. And sometimes that choice doesn't seem like it is a choice. Sometimes that uh, there are things, there are times where we feel options have been limited. And, and we have to take up arms because there is no other option. I, I don't want to go quite down that road uh, in this moment, but I think that it's very important to really pause and look at, not, not be fearful necessarily, but to really take a moment and think about how we are going to engage in a healthy way with each other on every level. And that's what this Agreed. show, Civil Discourse, is all about. So with that... Thank you, my my good and dear co-host, uh, for for uh, this this yet again worthy journey uh, of this time. And and speaking of thank yous, I want to thank our engineers uh, Parker McNerney and Keith Zdrojvi, who uh, continue to keep us ever growing in our technological and broadcasting uh, uh, success here. And you, our listeners. And and viewers, our audience at large, for uh, tuning in in whatever capacity you're managing, please write us and give us your thoughts on today's episode or any episode or any idea or concept or what's the weather like outside your place. We are not picky. If you have something you'd like to share, we'd like to hear it. And the way you we can get do very that, excited when we get an email. How do they, how do they email us so we can get happy about an email? Absolutely. You can write us at Civil Discourse TNSS. That stands for This Is Not a Safe Space at gmail.com. Again, Civil Discourse TNSS at gmail.com. And, uh, and, and let us know your thoughts. Also, go to wherever it is you go to get your podcasts. Uh, hit the like button. Hit subscribe. Tell your friends. Write a review. Give us five stars. Give us ten stars if you can. Um, we won't say no. <laughs> we'll take all the stars we can get. Absolutely. I love <laughs> so. stars. All the way back to elementary school. Gold star for you today. Um, uh, Lazarus I Trail. like the blue yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's anyway, sparkly. Yes. As long as it's sparkly. Uh, the right. Lazarus Trio, Carl Groves, and uh, our, our own Mike Koeniger, uh, who has written and performed and recorded the music that brings us in and out of every episode for which we are very grateful. And uh, finally, of course, and yet again, to you, the great Dr. Mike Conager. Wouldn't be the same without you. Well, thank you. And to you, Charles Frederick Sacrese, thank you so much for all you do and, and for your willingness to engage in these crazy arguments that I love to have. So, uh, <laughs> rhetoric. We actually use rhetoric. Proper, proper the proper rhetoric. way. The original way. <laughs> all right. So. Well, thank, thank you so much, everybody. Until next time, be good. <laughs>